What is going on, team? Welcome back to the show. Today, I am joined by Luke Lehman. Luke, thank you for being here, man. Hey, man. Thanks for having me on. Of course, dude. So, for the listeners who might not know, can you just give us a quick background on who you are and what you're up to? Yeah, I'll give you the I'll give you the Reader's Digest kind of bumper sticker thing. So, um, I've been in the industry pretty much my entire life. Started training when I was around eight years old for like Texas high school football and also bodybuilding. Right, I grew up with all the the golden era bodybuilders like Arnold and Franco Colombo and Frank Zane. And, you know, for me, it, for whatever reason, bodybuilding just did it for me. So I kind of started with that as a kid and then moved into powerlifting when I was in high school um, competitively and also to, to get stronger for football. Uh, after that, when I went to college, I kind of fell out of powerlifting for a while and went back into bodybuilding. Then I got bored of that and I went back into powerlifting and I did that for a while. And that was back in the day when people were, it, raw wasn't a big deal. Like in high school, raw powerlifting was a big deal. Um, right. And that was when we first started using the supportive equipment, but you might get like a 15 pound carryover out of a shirt. Later, when I was uh, in my mid, mid to late twenties, people were getting 200, 225 pounds out of a shirt and like three or 400 pounds out of a squat suit. And at that point, I just got tired of it. I went, this is not, I, I respect like the technique and right. the work you need to know how to use that. But to me, it would be like putting um, roller skates with rockets on your feet and saying you beat Usain Bolt. Like it didn't, to me, it just wasn't strength anymore. It was more of a technical skill. And so I left that. Um, and uh, went back in the bodybuilding strongman. I did some strongman competitions and that was it. So, you know, that was kind of what, what I've done, like competing and all the different areas that I've done. And then I, when I was in high school and I was 14, I had been studying some of Charles Poliquin stuff, Paul Check, Charles Staley, all these, these greats, you know, the legends of our industry. And I was reading this stuff out of magazines, uh, like muscle, uh, muscle media. We got the internet when I was 14. It probably sounds so weird to you. It's like, yeah, I got the internet in 1992 because you probably had it your entire life. I was born in 93, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and that just opened it opened it wide open because you had so much access at that point um, to these people that you've been reading about in magazines. Uh, and and I was using a lot of Charles Poliquin's stuff. Um, and he was what he was brilliant at was taking all of these other people's systems and kind of funneling it down and telling you exactly what you need to know. So kind of like removing the stuff that didn't matter and just systemizing it. And it all worked fantastically well for me. So I said, you know, when I, when I get enough money and get old enough, I'm going to go see this guy and do a mentorship. And, and that's what I did. So I went and got my PSP one, two, three, I did multiple biosigs. And then eventually I ended up working for him. And so I started lecturing in North America. Uh, in 2013, he left Polycon Group. I went in and kind of took over some of his uh, roles as far as lecturing with biosig and PICP. And after a couple of years, I just decided I, I wasn't real happy when I saw the behind the scenes things at the company. So I left and uh, my wife and I started Muscle Nerds. And so we've been doing that for the last six years and just traveling over and teaching people um, the stuff I thought was missing from uh, most of the education, which most of the education in the, in the industry was advanced hypertrophy, advanced fat loss, advanced carb cycling. No one was teaching the basic foundational stuff that gen pop people need. So we decided initially we would specialize on how to train normal people. That's practical in the way that they can be compliant and actually get the results without hurting people. And so we've done that. And then we branched off into other things again. Okay, absolutely. And that's something you mentioned with Charles Poliquin that I very much, at least from absorbing your content. And again, I've looked at you on a ton of podcasts in the past and whatnot is very much like you mentioned, like, 
hey, I was super into bodybuilding. I was super into powerlifting. I was super into strongman. And you seem to be very good at pulling all these different methods and like have a, such an in-depth understanding of all these different facets of like health and physiology mm. and really putting them together in a way that most people don't quite understand, which of course is why I wanted to have you on the show today. Um, so to start this conversation off, could you explain to us what is least mode and why is it something you talk about so much? Yeah, you know, that's a very good question because it's a lot of people don't understand what it means. And I've had to try to try. It's, it's hard to kind of explain and it's an evolving process. So um, I got I coined the term from a friend of mine. Um, we were we were laughing one day. We were he was sending me Instagram videos of these uh, influencers with hashtag beast moding, and we're watching their workouts. Going, that's what you consider beasting yourself. And so my friend Zach Trowbridge out of Chicago, he goes, it's more like least mode. And I went, ah. And I wrote that down, and I said, I'm just going to put that in my back pocket for a while. And then as I I got back into um, kind of making my own stuff, I realized, you know what? I'm getting the majority of the people that I would see that would want me to train them are people who have been screwed up by other coaches. So they're, they are beasting them out with crazy amounts of volume and training and crazy low amounts of food, mainly in, in female bodybuilding. So we, we get these bikini girls who are eating seven, eight, 900 calories a day. And they were training 21 to 24 hours. So their hair was falling out. Their, their nails wouldn't grow. Their nails are brittle. They had flaky skin. They had all these issues with, things like subclinical hypothyroidism and like chronic fatigue. And they just felt terrible. They were all getting sick. And then they would blow up after their, after their show. And I went, man, this stuff's gotta, gotta stop. So I decided that, you know, you've got one side that's beast mode and that's when you're, when you're training for purpose, but you've got another side that's least mode. So it's kind of like minimum effective dose versus maximal effective dose. Um, It's things like, we look at beasting out. That's we're looking at performance. So it's like anaerobic performance. People aren't doing enough aerobic stuff. So they're they're basically screwing up their their ability to make energy efficiently, and they're screwing up their pathways that basically keeps them alive and optimal, which is that aerobic um, kind of uh, side of the coin. So what least mode is really it's this concept of you can only go so hard for so long before you need to go back to maintenance, minimal effective dose, but least mode isn't easy stuff. Like people think that like aerobic cardio is least mode. That's not least mode. Um, It's just an element that can be used in least mode. And if we look at weight training, it's like, okay, just get in the gym, smash yourself for a short period of time, go home and recover. Um, It's that type of thing. So it's balancing out hard specific training versus what I would consider a deload which is take your volume considerably down, add more food, get your aerobic fitness back up, uh, fix your metrics once your metrics start to crumble, and then go back to the hard training again. So okay. you could actually look at it as like almost alternating periodization. I'm going to smash somebody for a certain number of weeks or months, and when I see their metrics crumble, now if you continue to push, your body's just going to keep getting worse. So let's stop for two or three weeks, go back to kind of a least modi type of, of training, allow yourself to recover and then go back to where you, where you left off in the training cycle. Okay. Okay. So when a new client hops on board and they're, you're not quite sure where they're at, what are the metrics or what are you looking at to determine like, okay, you're good to push right out of the gate or yo, we need to spend some time in this like least mode type of. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the first thing we look at is the easiest stuff that's most accessible to people would be what's your resting heart rate, what's your blood pressure. 
So you're going to have ranges that are considered optimal and acceptable. And then you're going to have uh, ranges outside of that or under it that aren't very good. So if you have somebody that comes in and they've got 160 over 100 blood pressure, the last thing they need to do is go to the gym and start doing heavy five rep squats. Um, the last thing they need to do is get on the echo bike and do 15 calorie sprints. Right. But their body, their body already thinks they're being constantly chased by an animal. So if I put you under the bar and you're squatting really heavy, a, your blood pressure is high. When you, when you brace your blood pressure is going to skyrocket, which is going to cause uh, damage to the endothelial lining in your vascular system because your vascular system won't dilate. Um, in a lot of cases, it's going to make your heart less efficient by making it more muscular, but it's not pushing as much blood. Uh, when that happens, you're going to push somebody towards having a heart attack or a stroke or um, any other type of metabolic or cardiovascular disease. So the way we look at it is if they've got bad metrics, let's fix that first because then they're going to get more out of their training and they're going to be able to recover better. They're going to sleep better. Their food is going to work better. Their training is going to be better. And so we might initially give them a small amount of least modi type of work to get their metrics good and then we just start smashing them until they can't handle it and then we go back to square one so if resting heart rate if that's typically over about 62 we want to try to fix that okay. blood pressure if it's above 120 over 80 we try to get that below 120 over 80. Um, on the other side too you get a blood pressure that's too low so if somebody comes in and their blood pressure is say 85 over 50 now it's a whole different protocol to bring that back up so that you can actually perfuse blood around the body correctly. If they have really, I've seen people with high heart rate of 85 to 95, just sitting there doing nothing. To me, that's unacceptable. Right. Um, we also look at uh, body temperatures, another one that we use a lot. So we typically see if someone's body temperature is really low. So let's say you're, since you're in America, you probably don't know Celsius, but, uh, normal uh, Celsius, 36.8, you know, plus or minus 0.2 or so. If someone comes in and they've been chronically dieting and they're sitting at 35.8, their metabolism is not going to work well. Uh, your body temperature has been associated with metabolic rate. So the first thing we need to do as a least mode protocol is take them back to maintenance for a little bit of time and, and fix their, their maintenance calories and then start their diet. There's a lot of stuff we look at for there. There's a lot of in-gym testing we can do as well. Um, so we teach uh, a real, like real dirty way of doing VO2 max. It's obviously not going to be like going to university and putting the Ivan Drago mask on and running on a treadmill, but it gets people a number that then we can weigh and measure. So see a lot of, a lot of gym pop on our calculation. They'll come in at like 25, 30 VO2 max. And what we've seen is on that specific calculation, we want to see them somewhere around 53 to 55 or higher. When we get them there, it's like magic happens. They're in shape, they're eating more and still losing weight. Uh, they can eat a lot more carbohydrates at that time and not have to worry about um, the carbohydrates causing any type of issue, you know, in, in someone who might be a little glucose intolerant and insulin, insulin resistant. Okay, okay, absolutely. And definitely a lot to unpack there. So for starters, it sounds like the thing that the audience needs to understand is it's not just like you would consider, okay, like this person's super out of shape. So thus they're like need to ease into this very much like individuals who probably look very fit could benefit from this. I don't know if it, in your experience, do you see that more often than like, I imagine that this is more geared towards like, this person has been smashing themselves for a long time. And thus, I don't want to say damage, but like, there's things we need to reverse out of rather than like, this person just hasn't trained or paid attention to their nutrition. It would, is that pretty accurate? Yeah. And the, the thing is that 
you look at progressive overload, that can mean a lot of things, right? Um, if uh, another coach might be smashing themselves with progressive overload and too much volume and not taking care of recovery. Um, and they, they could be, have the same horrible metrics as someone who doesn't do anything and their metrics are bad because they work 80 hours a week and maybe they have a toxic relationship with their, with their partner. Uh, maybe they're the CEO of a fortune 500 company. They'll actually have metrics that look like a high level power lifter that doesn't do their aerobic conditioning or doesn't do any type of conditioning. You see the same physiological manifestations of the, the heart getting, they'll, they'll have an athlete's heart, but they don't have the vascular system to manage it. Uh, they'll have chronic fatigue. They don't sleep well, sleeping three, four hours a night. Um, they can't take a solid shit. Maybe they crap at once every 10 days. Like that's not cool. Right. And then you, you, these things go up and down, right? So in an acute sense, when you have acute sympathetic drive, that's going to drive your numbers up. Blood pressure gets higher. Uh, blood sugar gets higher. Dyslipidemia gets worse. Triglycerides go up. Um, because you, you basically are in a, a sympathetic fight or flight zone that could be from physical activity, but that could also be from mental and, and, and uh, uh, mental and psychological stress as well. But then a lot of times you'll see a lot of that stuff crash too. So when you see guys, most guys typically be, they'll, they'll typically have uh, elevated blood pressure and elevated bl blood glucose and elevated heart rate women tend to go the other way. So their, theirs will pop up and then it crashes. And there's some hormonal issues for that. Um, there, there's probably some differences in a mindset versus um, a, a female and a male on how this goes. Women tend to be uh, a bit more protected because of their hormones right. and their mental space tends to be a bit better than guys as far as they, they don't tend to smash themselves with... Um, like job stress as much as men do, right? Maybe it's an ego thing. Maybe it's a, who knows, right? But right. you'll typically see most of the guys that I see should probably do a little bit less resistance training and a little bit more cardio and yoga. Most girls probably need to do a little bit less conditioning and yoga and actually smash some heavy weights instead. And because okay. uh, the heavy weights will drive your blood pressure up, whereas the cardio will bring your blood pressure down. Okay. Okay. So let's say like, that dude that is working eight, eight hours a week, it's just stress as fuck. And that's like one of the biggest issues here. So, okay, dude, like he's, let's say lifting, busy dude, he's lifting five days per week as well, right? Or maybe six, like he's crushing himself in the gym as well. So from there, like when we're like putting together, okay, we need to get you into this like least mode phase for a bit. What are kind of the main components of like with training or aerobic work like what are we looking to what's this and again this is like asking a very general question about yeah. asking you for a very specific answer so please be as general as needed but when we're kind of putting together okay so here's like probably like we're going to start chasing this with your aerobic system etc can you dig into that a little bit yeah so um it really it's all individual right depends on what what's got them there mm -hmm. so first thing is determining how much work you actually need to get your goal right? So this is the problem with guys. Guys will go in the gym, they'll spend two hours in the gym. And most of the time they're just walking around talking and they're hardly doing anything. And, and if they don't have a coach, their exercise selection probably pretty piss poor. Um, but it's trying to, to get them to understand that what you're doing now isn't working. We've got to do the opposite, right? We can't just keep repeating what you're doing. Um, a lot of it for guys tends to be, they tend to be injured, inflamed, uh, in denial about their shit. They tend to do exercises and try to work through around pain. They tend to have mo massive mobility issues. 
So what we typically do is, is a, a form of a method of structural balance that we came up with called structural backloading. So in structural backloading, you're going to do a lot of stretching and weighted mobility movements in the first part of the workout and your big lift goes at the end. And a lot of people go, well, that's dumb. You shouldn't stretch before you lift because it makes you weaker. Well, if my guy has 180 over 110 blood pressure and his blood sugar is high and his resting heart rate's really high, I don't really give a shit about strength. If his lower back is killing him because he's you know, doing horrible spinal flexed deadlifts with a spine that isn't conditioned to have rigidity in that position, we got a lot of other stuff that's more important than worrying about giving him a 300 kilo back squat, which most gym pop people don't give a shit about anyways. Right. They want to feel good. They want to have sex longer than two minutes without their back blowing out. They want to take a solid poo. They want to think better. They want to have less fatigue. Like that's realistically what they're looking for. That the number of people that have come to me that were gen pop that said, you know what? I'd like to squat 200 kilos and deadlift 300. None. I've right. hardly ever had it. Only people in our industry want to do that type of thing. And so coaches tend to push their project what they want onto their clients. So they end up, giving the client something they're not even asking for. Right. So when we do back low structural balance, we will do some type of flexibility movement. And what we tend to do is we find the areas in the body that are pulling the, the, the bony structures in a, into a position that's not really conducive for full range lifting or loaded lifting. So it might be something like, maybe it's the quad. You've got a lot of tension from the middle of the quad down to the knee, okay? That's not gonna be great when you try to squat because your knee can't translocate properly. Um, and then, so if your knee doesn't have range of motion, if your hip flexion doesn't have enough range of motion, if your dorsiflexion doesn't have enough range of motion, you're going to start rotating through places you're not supposed to like lumbar spine flexion, right? So what we do is we say, okay, maybe, maybe it's that quad from the middle to the knee. Let's go try a couch stretch, put them in a couch stretch. They can't even do it. So what I want to do is unlock range of motion to get them there. So the first thing we'll do is try some PNF stretching and static stretching to get the stretch reflex to be desensitized so they can get their butt closer to their heel. Then we might do some hard isometric, like contra uh, contract, relax, antagonistic contract to try to get more range. And then we put them through a weighted mobility movement. So once we've unlocked the, the, the mobility and the flexibility, then we give them a weighted mobility movement to teach the brain how to manage load in that new range of motion and to teach the brain that that's a safe position. Stop making things so hypertonic and grabby. So, might be something like a couch stretch. Maybe they've got six inches between their glute and their heel. I want to try to close that as fast as possible. Maybe we do around a split squat with PNF and crack stretching. Maybe we reduce that by four inches. Now I'm going to give them a, a weighted mobility movement that allows them to hold weight and go into that range of motion like a Bulgarian split squat. So then we might have them do rounds of Bulgarian split squat and go back and forth between stretch mobility, weighted mobility, and then we put the a front squat at the end and we see if it's improved the front squat and 10 times out of 10, it does. Right. And so my goal is if I want this person to get stronger and not have dysfunction, I need to get them mechanically in a position where they can do the front squat with good technique. Sometimes that means, you know, tightening some lug nuts and loosening other lug nuts to get them in a good mechanical position. And then when they can do that indicator lift without needing all the stretchy stuff, we go to something called front loaded structural balance where now the front squat goes up front and then we maintain the stretchy stuff with supplementary and accessory work. And then eventually we don't need that stretchy stuff. Then we can maintain it with split squats and 
back extension and good mornings and lunges. We could do that type of thing to maintain it. So then you're moving into more of a traditional model of, of what we'd be, be taught in like, uh, like PICP or, or whoever teaches stuff. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. Makes complete sense. So then when we're looking at like building a stronger aerobic base, is there again, like, Hey, typically people are, because if I heard correctly so far, this is typically when you're going to focus more on, okay, let's build up your aerobic system a bit. Correct. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. I I meant to, I meant to layer that on at the end. Oh, you're good. With the aerobic work, what we found is initially more is better. The more you bulk up a lot of conditioning, at least like easy conditioning, the faster we fix the metrics. So we've got, you know, you've got optimal and you have practical. So, you know, optimally, I want you to get on an incline treadmill, 60 minutes, maybe even 90 minutes a day, and just trudge along and get your heart rate elevated 130, 140 beats per minute. Um, now that's not really practical for gen pop because they don't have that kind of time. So right. then we might say, look, let's try to get at least 30 minutes a day. If you can get 30 minutes a day, it might take a little longer, but it's, it'll still happen really fast. If they still don't have a lot of time, we'll move to aerobic intervals, something where it's, it is a bit more intense, but we're still staying within an aerobic, uh, method. So we might say, you know, you're going to do a two to four minute run. And then you're going to walk until your heart rate gets back down to 120, 130, and then repeat that. And then we can, because they're more intense workouts, we don't need as much volume. So then we might only be able to do that, you know, three or four days a week, or maybe even two or three. Okay. But the key is they're not doing it right now. So anything they do is going to, is going to stimulate an adaptation. Right. Right. And something I've already talked a lot about is even people that want to be jacked need to have some type of aerobic work as well can you just quick because it does very well tie into this topic like what is the thought process behind that or like why is that again like hey this person's goal is hypertrophy only why do you think it's beneficial for them to do some aerobic work along with that does that make sense yeah it makes sense look you have to be in shape to train if you have a specific goal so I'll tell you on one side of the coin, yes, uh, something I heard um, Roderick Chavez say, and if you know who he is, that's the evil genius. So he's a biologist. He only trains dudes on gear. Right. And uh, if you're, if you're a natty, he won't even, he won't even talk to you. He'll, he'll refer you to someone else. So he's kind of at that extreme level of performance. And one thing he said about cardio and he went on this huge rant in the seminar, he goes, you know, if you think that aerobics going to limit your gains, you're smoking crack. You know what limits your gains? Dying. Dying is horrible for performance. So if your aerobics is that bad that it's pushing you towards mortality, when you die, you're, you're not going to get any better anyway. So you might as well take care of that now. And I was like, right on, man. That's, that's perfect. Now, on the second thing, the more aerobic reserve you have, the more reps you can do without hitting lactate tolerance or lactate threshold. So if I'm, if I'm doing a set of squats at 12 and my legs are on fire at the fourth rep, my lactate threshold is very poor. If I can get the aerobic ceiling higher, the lactate ceiling go higher, I'll actually be able to do more weight for those 12 reps. And if we compound that, now we've got progressive overload. We're lifting more weight in each session and recovering better between sets and also between uh, sessions. So you can train more and you can train with more reps and more weight. And that total volume tends to drive hypertrophy. Absolutely. And that's, again, I feel like when it's laid out like that, it's so simple. Like I love the saying, uh, the aerobic is the aerobic system drives recovery from anaerobic bouts. Right. But it's so easy to just get fixated on like what, like you mentioned earlier, like, Hey, I'm going to bust out 15 calories on the assault bike as quickly as possible. And just like 
even with cardio, it's so easy to get fixated on like all the anaerobic work. And it's yeah. so easy to overlook how important or what a difference maker the actually building up a better aerobic base can be. Yeah. And a lot of people say, well, the aerobic stuff, you got epoch and all this. So I'm like, okay, let's, 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 let's deconstruct this. You're talking about leveraging excessive uh, uh, post-exercise oxygen consumption, right? Excessive post-exercise oxygen consumption. Where are you getting that oxygen? If you don't have good aerobic fitness, you're not really getting the most out of epoch anyways. Right. And, and when you look at like progressive overload, it, that's not just for muscles. That's also for things like red blood cells. When you get aerobically fit, you make more red blood cells. You carry more oxygen. That means you oxidize uh, carbohydrates and you oxidize fat at a better weight, rate, which means you can eat a lot more food and grow a lot faster if you have at least a, a basic level of aerobic fitness, which a lot of guys don't do. And if you look at Stuart McGill, one of his top protocols for um, lower back pain, he goes, do your aerobics. Do aerobics because it tends to be have an analgesic um, effect on the body. So whether that's going out and walking or doing your, your cardio, you, get, you need to do something, especially if you got a lot of lower back pain, which most of our clients do. Right. Okay. Okay. So then when we're getting out of this, like least mode, okay, we built up a good aerobic base. What's typically, and again, this is probably very specific, but what's typically kind of like that maintenance level of aerobic work that people need to do on a weekly or monthly basis to maintain a good, like all these metrics that you're looking at to keep those in a good place? Look, it, it, the hard part's getting there. Like the easy part is the maintenance. So you need very little maintenance work to, to keep that going. So kind of our model would be, all right, your metrics are real messed up. Let's get the metrics good. Let's get you feeling good, sleeping good, processing food good, training good, work capacity is good, sweet. Now, the whole point is to drive those metrics down into overreaching, so then we, we super compensate higher. So as far as how much you actually need, you might not need anything. If you move, let's say you move from eight weeks of that kind of prep GPP work, and your specific uh, work is going to be hypertrophy, well, now train five or six days a week with hypertrophy until you see your metrics start to crumble. Once they start trending down, um, not, not one snapshot, like not one HRV, not one heart rate, watch it trend down for a good week or so. And if it's not getting better, cool. You probably need to deload or go back to the GPP work to recover. Spend a week or two weeks there. You'll see your metrics shoot back up. Then you go right back into smashing yourself again. Right. And that's kind of the ebb and flow. So it might be like, let's say you hired me and you said, look, I want to, I want to squat. I don't know what you squat, but maybe you want to squat 250 kilos, whatever. Um, and so I'm like, okay. And I look at your metrics and they're terrible. I'm like, We're going to fix this first. And we're going to fix on structural issues that might be limiting your ability to make that 250 kilo squat, like your lower back or your knees or your ankles, whatever. So we're going to focus on fixing some postural issues, whatever you need for that specific lift. And we're going to fix your metrics. We're going to get you in shape and we're going to build your calories up really high. Let's say eight weeks later, your metrics look perfect. And you know, all of your accessory lifts are looking good. You're able to get the bar on your back without like fucking up your shoulders and your elbows and your wrists. Um, your lower back feels good. Cool. Let's just go into a squat cycle. Maybe we're training five days a week. At that point, you don't want to waste excessive energy on cardio. You know, so you can right. leave it out completely because the detraining from aerobic work is very slow. You might, you might make it six months before you ever need to do cardio again. But what we do find is most of the time when we, when we get these people who are like hashtag F cardio, when we get them to actually do some conditioning, 
they start feeling so good that they don't want us to take it out. So then we might maintain it on an aerobic protocol that's really intense. Like maybe I give you two, two sets of Tabata on an echo bike twice a week. That's plenty to maintain it. Plenty. And then you can just focus the majority of your work on just train with the weights and get stronger. Uh, to speak to that, I remember I was definitely on a like fuck cardio camp for the longest time. And I remember when I actually, I hired my first coach who actually like knew what he was doing and had some aerobic work in there as well. So, this is fucking crazy, dude. Like I feel so much better. I'm not dying during like doing more than eight reps of anything. Um, super insightful. So one last thing I wanted to dig into before we move on from like this least mode kind of topic is you mentioned, okay, some people we might not necessarily be set up super well to have as high of carbohydrates versus others are probably in a better position to do so when we're going about, okay, like we're setting up this kind of, again, very specific question, but when we're setting about up like this client's nutrition, like ratios of protein to carbs to fat, what are some general, like when we're trying to determine what that might be, what are some general things you're looking for there? Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. Okay. So that's the thing, you know, nutrition is one of those things that people fight on nutrition worse than they fight about religion. It's like people are those right. religious cults. Yeah. The keto guys, you have the carbivore guys, you've got, you know, and everything in between, you know, time restricted eating, intermittent fasting, alternate day eating. You got all these people just fighting. They're all right and wrong for, for a lot of different reasons. It just depends on the context. So, um, you know, on a, on a base level, the research is pretty clear. If you just eat, eat enough protein, you can get the rest of the stuff from carbs and fats. As long as you match your calories, probably doesn't matter if you have a long-term approach, but there's also a lot of evidence saying that if you're insulin resistant, a lower carb diet is probably gonna be best for you. And if you're insulin sensitive, a higher carbohydrate diets for you. So my model for this is to start most people on a lower carb diet initially, um, unless they're in a performance. If you're in a performance sport, like you're a marathon runner, a triathlete, MMA, you're going to need carbs. Like there's without a doubt, if you try to do MMA without carbs, you're going to turn into Ricky Bobby and you don't know what to do with your hands. Right. Um, you, you need carbs. Carbs are like nitrous for performance. So, but if gym pop, they're not that active and realistically they don't train that hard. They just, they don't, um, the, this past weekend, my program design class, we had our practical and I, I had them come watch me train someone uh, for one session. And I think they were horrified at how hard I train her because I've been training this woman for eight months and she's doing, you know, she's doing leg presses with 160 kilos for 20 to 25 reps. And she's shaking violently, like she's Terrible. having an epileptic seizure. And I turned and I had yeah, if you want fast results, you have to build them to this point. Um, you can you can go slow or you can get fast results. And that's why she's lost 25 kilos in, in eight months. Um, but when we look at the early stages, if you have a high amount of body fat, you're probably going to have some systemic inflammation. That's just part of it. You're probably not going to handle carbs that well. That doesn't mean you can't eat a lot of carbs and still have success. But if you want rapid results, I just find that a lower carb diet initially helps a lot with lowering blood pressure, lowering systemic inflammation, making you more fat adapted, improving metabolic flexibility. And then when you lose a tremendous amount of weight, um, then we slowly start adding carbs back in and we kind of do a reverse diet, but not with calories per se. We, we reverse diet on carbs. And as you get leaner, you earn more and more carbs because you, at some point you're going to need that. So like women who are getting into that 24, 25, 27% body fat range, you need to give them carbs. If a guy's getting close to that, 
I would say for most guys, like 17, 18%, that's when they need the carbs. And part of it is, you know, managing hunger cues too. What I find is that when you're really overweight, you can diet on a lot less calories as long as you're taking your vitamins and cofactors. Um, and the, the low carb stuff tends to make people not hungry. I have to, I have to make my clients set a, an alarm to remind them to eat, but there's a, there's a tipping point where now you, you, you can leverage carbs and insulin to increase leptin and increase satiety in the body. So if you start getting really lean, uh, and you're not eating carbs, man, you are going to be hungry all the time. And you're just going to binge unless you have a lot of like hard mental fortitude. So it's, it's, it's all a sliding scale. So for me, uh, I'm of the opinion based on experience and based on the literature, feed them as much protein as you can get away with. So that might be 2.2 grams, uh, carbs, uh, 2.2 grams per kilogram. That might be up to 3.3. So I'll, some people are giving triple body weight in protein. And I find it's at that point, they're so satiated that, um, they're just not hungry. And so it's a lot easier to get them to do that. So we kind of go on a model of lots of protein and lots of veg. Um, and then when they get lean, now we start upping the carbs. And then as we up the carbs, we also up their volume and up their performance. So it's, it's, it's honestly not an easy answer to say, but you know, when, when you have some guys saying, Oh, the keto guys are stupid. Keto works really well for a lot of people, especially if you're really fat, um, you're 60% body fat you don't really need any carbs. You have plenty of energy in the body. You don't even need that many calories. So I'll put people on low calorie, even carnivore style diet with some veggies, as long as they're on a multivitamin, multimineral. Um, the, the hard part is once they start getting lean, you're like, okay, we really, you're starting to get hungry. Um, we really need to start upping the carbs. And they're like, oh, wait. So you have to, you have, to have a, a proactive stance to say, hey, we're going to put you on more of a high protein, low energy diet. Um, but at some point we're gonna have to have carbs. So you have to constantly tell them that so that when it's time and you have the carbs, they don't freak out. Super insightful. And that was actually gonna be one of my questions. One is, do you have trouble getting clients to adhere to like a lower carb approach like that? But uh, it sounds like from, and then two from like the, as you mentioned, like, hey, there's nothing wrong with like any of these diets, but also it's not like, like the biggest argument against keto is typically like, Hey, it's not sustainable long-term, but also like, it's not something that you're pushing people like, Hey, you are keto forever. Or, and I don't know if even you're saying like always going low carb to the extent where you're in ketosis or not, but very much like it's a phase. Um, and I do think that kind of random tangent, but a lot when we're looking at like more obese clients, especially, one thing that absolutely kills some people is just like, okay, this has to be so slow and sustainable no matter what. Whereas like, as you said, I think that there's a lot of merit to many people where it's like, fuck, I have 150 pounds to lose. I don't want this to take yeah. four years. Right. So I think that's great insight to where like, if it is a method that they can adhere to and we'll get them down there quicker, it doesn't have to be like, this is where we're at for the rest of your life. Right. Yeah, it's just a phase. It's like, okay, I'm going to do a phase of structural balance. I'm going to do a phase of hypertrophy. I'm going to do a phase of strength. I'm going to do a phase of metabolic fat loss. The dieting is the same thing, right? So you might be on a, a phase of pretty low calories and almost all protein, like a protein sparing modified fast. You start losing a tremendous amount of weight. I mean, I have people lose two, two and a half kilos a week on that. It's insane. And that's coming off of, off of a keto diet because I typically put them on a keto diet first. Um, get them into ketosis so they're not hungry, and then I'll cut the calories. Um, 
not this is not something I typically teach in um, in my classes. I save this for the mentorship guys because you get sixty people, you have no idea what they're how they're going to interpret that, and you don't want them doing anything crazy. But um, you know, the way I look at it is you're never really truly in a caloric deficit unless you're starving to death and dying. So you've got two places that you're getting energy from exogenous food and endogenous food you've eaten in the past that you couldn't use that at that time. So my goal is to try to make up your deficit with the body fat that you have on. And then when your body goes, all right, I've lost a tremendous amount of these fuel stores. You know, I'm going to slow this stuff down. Then we can start, you know, cranking up the exogenous food to make up the, that, that extreme deficit. And then we usually use carbohydrates, but it, it's all phases. Right. And that's the key. Right. Like, Nutrition should be periodized in, in the same way that training and conditioning should be periodized. Absolutely. Um, and the thing is, I don't want people to, to misconstrue what I'm saying. You can get there however you want. Low carb, high carb, it doesn't matter. You have to find what diet works with your clients. Have a client that has binging sugar carb addictions, I'm probably going to put them on fairly low, low carb, and high protein. If you have somebody who's an endurance athlete or some athlete that needs a high level of fuel, and performance fuel, higher protein, and they're going to be more on a higher carb, lower fat diet. If the client wants treats, then I'm going to tell them here, these are your calories. Here's your protein allotment. You can have the treats as long as you get the protein, but I don't want you to go over the calorie, calorie allotment. I don't care if you get it through ice cream, Snickers. I don't give a shit. Um, if you want to do a bodybuilder, brotastic, you know, ch chicken breast, broccoli and rice, I'm okay with that too. You have to you have to find the eating profile that's going to fit each client to give them the best level of success and try not to fit them in a box um, that they don't fit in. And that's what you'll see with a lot of coaches. They'll say, well, keto diet worked for me or, you know, zone diet worked for me or 70 percent carbs work for me. So that's going to work for everybody. But then you and it will as long as the calories are set correctly. But if your client hates the diet and they're constantly binging in the closet so nobody knows, well, you failed them. You're not, you're not doing what's best for them, which is giving them the diet that's going to work for them biochemically, physiologically, and psychologically. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more, man. And taking it back to even what you talked about earlier about like the 300 kilo back squat or whatever. Very, I think it's so important as a coach to like make sure you're not projecting like what you want or what you enjoy on the client, but rather like, am I helping them get towards what they want? but um i did that i did that so much when i first started right so how old are you uh 28 28 so i started training people when i was 19 so keep in mind i'm coming from a gridiron football powerlifting physique right. background and some lady would come in and want to be trained and in my mind i'm like in six months i'm putting you on stage or some guy would walk <laughs> in i'm like in 12 months, you're going to do a strong man show. That's not what they're asking. They're going there. I want to be unfat, not dick skin lean. I just want to be unfat and look good in, in clothes and drop a pant size. And I'm like, no, you want veins on your abs and you want to eat nothing and you want to perform. And then, you know, over time, I, I, that was the first half of my career. And then I realized, man, I'm failing a lot of people because I'm not listening to what they want. Um, I, I was still of the opinion that everyone had to do pull-ups, dips, and deadlifts and squats. And you just force people to do that when they absolutely hated those exercises and those exercises caused pain. Right. Uh, and then, and now my thing is, you know, I train people with traditional stuff, but we're using a lot more human movement things. I'm using a lot more animal flow. I'm using a lot more weighted mobility, a lot more gymnastics training and blending that with traditional. And 
I, I find that clients like that stuff a lot more than just doing a stock standard strength and conditioning program, unless they're younger, like the, in their twenties and they still feel like they need to, you know, that it's, the young guys still think that having a, a massive deadlift is going to get the ladies and no one cares about that, but your other powerlifting buddies, right? <laughs> Very insightful, man. So um, let's take this to then. Basically, we talked through, okay, we have lease mode, and it sounds like generally when you're going into, let's let's make this somewhat specific to hypertrophy, I suppose. Like generally, okay, someone comes on board like, hey, your metrics are shit, but yo, I want to get jacked eventually. So it sounds like basically most cases we probably go through like some type of lease mode, some type of GPP phase for anywhere from, would you say like three to eight weeks? Is that pretty accurate? Yeah, something like that. Sometimes longer. It depends on how much uh, time they can invest into it. Okay. And sometimes they don't need it at all, right? right? So like when we first started teaching this stuff, um, I got really big into the blood pressure because I would have, I, I don't have my blood pressure cuff, but I have a blood pressure cuff I carry with me um, to, to teach coaches how to take blood pressure because I was appalled at how many coaches weren't even taking blood pressure. Um, and if you have somebody who has high blood pressure and you give them the wrong movements, you're progressing them towards more dysfunction. So I would hand, I would pass it around I'd have 60 people in class. Three people would have perfect blood pressure. It'd be me and two people I train. And the rest of them would be not pre-hypertense, stage one, stage two. Now, fast forward a few years, people listen to the podcast and they're, they're looking at what we're saying. And I pass it around. Everybody's got perfect blood pressure. And I'm going, huh, what's going on? They're like, yeah, I've been doing my cardio for the last three months. And I went, all right. So you, you, you don't need, you can just skip all that step if they're looking pretty good. You know, you can just focus okay. on if they've got structural issues, pain. You can bypass all the other stuff and just move to that and performance. Okay. Okay, cool. So then let's dig into like, okay, we do get to, okay, we're ready to push for hypertrophy, right? Um, because how I've heard you talk about periodization is very interesting as well, because it does very much seem like, again, you pull from a lot of different camps. Um, when we're going into like, okay, we're ready for a hypertrophy block. Like, you know, something I've heard you talk about a lot is this German body composition thing. Or like just in general, again, like, okay, we're in a good place. We're going, we're ready to go into a hypertrophy block. Is there a specific like approach? And again, I'm sure a lot of it varies, but is there a specific like, Hey, we want to take typically this direction with this. Does that make sense? Yeah. So we'll take it from the most simple, simple aspect. So like we talked about with food, get your, set your protein calories, whether that's maintenance, deficit, surplus, you good. So hypertrophy is the same thing. Like you can hypertrophy on any protocol you do, as long as you do enough work. You, you, can pro, you can hypertrophy on German volume training. You can hypertrophy on uh, giant sets. You could do tri-sets. You could do standard 8 to 12 brotastic bodybuilding. Like, it doesn't really matter. You just have to push the muscles to a high enough intensity to make them feel like they need to get bigger and you need to do it often. So it's, it's getting big and getting strong is very easy. It's just lift heavy, eat heavy, sleep heavy. Wash, rinse, repeat. You do that long enough, you're going to get big. Like it's, people try to overcomplicate this, but um, we work on kind of two, two models. So I've got density training, which would be like tri-sets, giant sets, things like that. Um, and then on the other side, you've got percentage-based training. So if we look at standard, what we would consider bodybuilding hypertrophy, we're looking at somewhere around 67 to probably 80, 82.5% of your one rep max. So if we're doing rep ranges and sufficient amounts of, of uh, volume, and we're lifting to to what I consider failure, or at least concentric failure, which is you lift until you get one kind of ugly rep. One rep doesn't look 
or feel like the others, we're done with that set. You've pretty much pushed that. You've got probably no more reps in reserve. So we'll put them to concentric failure, wash, rinse, repeat that with a lot of food, a lot of rest. That's it. That's, that's the magic formula. Um, and then, you know, there's a lot of fighting on things like sarcoplasmic hypertrophy, amalfibular hypertrophy, blah, 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 blah. Um, you know, if you want to get big really fast, you use, you know, hypertrophy rep ranges because that's going to cause inflammatory cellular swelling. You're going to look big quick. The only problem is that's kind of easy come, easy go. If you stop training, you're going to deflate quite a bit. When you look at 85% up to super maximal lifting, you, you tend to have a different growth stimulus, which is more mechanical in nature. So things like myosin and actin cross bridges, those fibers, all the muscle fibers start to get thicker because you're, they have to get thicker to grow, to handle higher and higher loads. Um, so you've got a trade-off. You can, you can use sarcoplasmic hypertrophy to swell and you're getting a little bit of monofibular hypertrophy, or you can use the monofibular hypertrophy, which tends to make you bigger in the long scheme, but it's slower. So it's a longer process, but it's, it's more last lasting, right? Um, now with most of my gym pop clients, if they're not an, a, a good accomplished lifter, if they're not a coach or an athlete, I tend to stay away from anything below five. I tend to say, you know, our block is from six to infinity and beyond until they've trained with me long enough that I know they can handle double singles, triples, fours, fives. Um, but we're talking most of the clients that I deal with, we wouldn't be doing any of that until they're training for 18 to 24 months. We've got to build, we have to build the canoe before we put a bigger cannon on it. Right. Right. So that was kind of a Fred Hatfield saying, right. You can't fire a cannon from a canoe. Right. So for me, the canoe is your body structure and the cannon is your nervous system. So I need to spend enough time. If I want to put a bigger cannon, I have to build a battleship. I can't, I can't just keep, you know, putting a bigger, bigger cannon on the canoe or eventually the canoe is going to sink. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So I, th that, I think that's a pretty solid breakdown. Um, when you're digging into then exercise selection, is there, are there some typical fundamentals of like, Hey, here's what we're looking for again. Like, okay, you're training for hypertrophy. Here's more so what we're looking for versus the other goals. Or can you talk us through your approach to that? Uh, yeah. So, I one thing that I'm big on is training lengthened range of motion or lengthened position of flexion, because that's what people tend to not. So, and that's a positions of flexion is the, the way you write this. It's an old school, like Ironman magazine type of structure. And that's what I, my personal preference for bodybuilding is positions of flexion. So you would do a mid range movement where there's no, a lot, a lot of stretch, not a lot of full contraction then we would do a contracted movement and we do a lengthened movement. So in the original POF, they would do mid range. So like say a bench press, then they would do a lengthened position. So like a dumbbell fly, and they would do a fully contracted position, like some type of crossover. Right. Um, now what I prefer to do is I prefer to do mid range contracted and I use the mid range of contraction to engorge the muscles with blood. And now when they've got a lot of blood, now make them do the stretchy movement because then I see that they get, they get a lot more muscle trauma faster. Um, and I like to end workouts with some type of length and range of motion because lifting, if you're lifting, um, especially not in length and ranges, you tend to make things a lot tighter. So my goal is to keep joints mobile and keep muscles flexible. So anytime I write a program, I'm always going to keep some type of length and range in there, unless it's a, uh, like a peaking specific routine where they may only be deadlifting eight to 10 sets 
and that might be specific to a deadlift uh, competition. So like we're trans, we're, we're kind of doing a lot of stretchy stuff for structural reprogramming. And then we're going into mainly big mid range power movements and we're doing some contractive movements for bodybuilders. And then we end up with some LinkedIn range of motion as well. So let's say somebody wants to build their front squat. So a typical front squat workout might be, we're going to get a lot of exposure to the front squat and maybe we do some, some type of knee flexion. So we might do Nordic curls, glute ham, uh, raise, you might do, um, standard leg curls, but then your accessory work is going to be like a split squat or a lunge, or we might do a good morning or we might do a, an RDL in order to move the, move the range of motion through that lengthened state. And we find that that keeps their mobility and their flexibility a bit more tidy than right. just smashing mid range movements. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. And then with these lengthened movements that you're using, are you manipulating tempo a lot versus like what you would do for like your mid range and short end or can you, and again, it probably depends. Can you give us a general idea of that? It really depends on what's the outcome, right? Okay. Set principle, specific adaptation or specific adaptation to post demand. So in the early stages, you might use a lot of eccentrics and a lot of end range isometrics. And the reason I like that is when you go into long, heavy eccentrics, it tends to create more length in the muscle by sarcomere genesis. So we end up putting more sarcomeres in the chain. So if you think about a muscle as being like a bike chain, if I want that to lengthen, obviously I'm not gonna lengthen it from tendon to tendon, but muscles don't just slide, they expand as well. So if I can put more links in the chain, the muscle can now go to a longer um, lengthened position and they can maintain a better resting position. So in the early stages, we might be doing lots of long eccentrics. Like I'm talking 10 or 15 second eccentrics to basically remove some tightness. You know, I'm doing the Dr. Evil thing, like tightness and things like that. And I might be doing some long range isometric holds. So like a pullover, once the hand clears the shoulder, we might be doing eight to 15 seconds down. And then we're going to hold a hard isometric here. So we're getting the muscle to over time lengthen to get into a better range of motion, shoulder flexion. But then we're holding the isometric to retrain the brain that this is a good state, state, stable position. You don't need to make everything grabby. My shoulder's okay here. Right. Then when you, move, when you move into the normal stuff, yeah, we'll use yeah, three, four-second eccentrics and really keep it tidy by slowly moving into that, maybe hold an isometric and come out of it. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. So then when we're, again, taking it back to how we're putting all this together. So again, for like, say this client is, that is very focused on hypertrophy specifically and gone through like a very hypertrophy specific block or um, would you typically prefer to like, hey, I'm just gonna, we're gonna stay in this indefinitely until again, like your metrics show, we need to go back into lease mode and then we'll go back to hypertrophy training. Do you like to work in like more strength specific phases or is it kind of like, hey, this is all somewhat blended together? Does that make sense? Yeah, I typically keep a lot of blended stuff together, but you know, if we need high level specificity, then you got to work on specific things. So with the strength work, if somebody's desire is to make a movement stronger, um, then we'll do more strength specific work until they get to the point where the metrics drop. I tend to see the metrics drop faster with the strength work. Um, if you look at like central nervous system fatigue typically is attributed to volume. But when we look at the things like HRV, I tend to see those skew worse when you get into more neurological type training, because it tends to ramp up the nervous system. And if you keep the system ramped up, eventually it starts to crumble. So um, yeah, so like if I'm going into a big, say three to four month mesocycle of hypertrophy, we'll rotate through 
various hypertrophy uh, methods based on the percentages or based on how many total reps per set, like density. Um, and we'll do that. And when we see the metrics start to crumble, then we'll pull them off of that. So let's say I had 16 weeks and week 10, they tell me, man, I'm not sleeping well. My digestion screwed up. I just, I have no motivation to train. I'll go, okay, let's take the metrics for a few days. And if I see that their baseline metrics are, are very high and these new metrics are very low, I'm like, okay, you've pretty much pushed yourself to overreaching. This is what you want to do. You want to push yourself into the hole, but you don't want to push yourself in the hole so far that you can't climb back out. So we give them, we'll say, okay, this was 16 weeks. We're going to extend it to 18. And we're going to pop this one thing here where we might only train three days a week with weights, reduce the volume and intensity a little bit, add a little bit more cardio, spend more time sleeping, spend more time on a hobby, spend more time with your, your partner, um, spend more time relaxing. And then the metrics shoot back up. And now we go, we finish out the other, the other all the way to 18 weeks, whatever that is. Okay. That makes complete sense. And everybody's affected differently. So like I have a, a friend of mine, Krista, that I've trained for years in Chicago. I know from experience, she has about two weeks of high, high threshold motor unit lifting. And then she just goes. Brrr. So with her programs, if I write a four week block of like something like Hepburn method, hmm. I'm going to have her do two weeks of that with one or two weeks in the middle of a bodybuilder low volume. And then I'm going to have her finish up the four weeks by putting those last two weeks after she deloads and i find that for her when she wants to get stronger that works really well so i mean that's definitely something i've noticed as well it, it does vary so much by individual like how and of course there's like lots of lifestyle factors um but like how much like some people are just smashed so quickly and if we're doing more neurological work versus up to a weird extent why why do you think that seems to be like such a dramatic variance from person to person yeah, I mean, everybody's biochemistry is different. Their nervous system is different. Um, and you'll see, like, like for me, if I stay on hypertrophy-specific things for too long, I just start to deflate and I get weaker. So I've always been a, a strength and power athlete. So most of what I do is in the strength and power athlete realm. So right. you'll see people that, you know, I, I, could, I could go out and dig ditches for 12 hours and then go in the gym and max out every day, and I can do that pretty much indefinitely. But if I were to do um, you know, too much conditioning work and if I do like GVT 10 by 10 or if I'm staying in the 10 to 12 rep range, I start to go up initially and after a couple of weeks, I just crash. Um, and just people have different tolerances for different types of work. And a lot of that can be modulated as well. So you, know, you have some people that just have an, a, a genetic predisposition to be able to buffer products in the cell like say hydrogen and you have some people that don't. So you have some people that just have a really good VO2 max and lactate threshold, and they can handle tons of lactate work. And you have some people that don't. Some of that's going to be nutrition, um, like B3 deficiency, B1 deficiency, B2 deficiency. Um, for some people, it's just how they're built. Everybody's built for something different. And if they weren't, then you wouldn't have all these various blends of different somatotypes. Right. If, you, if you're on that kind of ectomorphic side, you've got a really small bone structure or really long limbs, you're not going to make a great power lifter, right? Um, but if you're on the other side, like me, with a big, heavy bone structure um, and a lot of muscle mass and heavy skeletal system, you know, I'm I'm gonna I'm great for producing power. I'm never gonna be a world champion marathon runner. So you just kind of have to find what fits for your body type. Right. Okay. Okay. So interesting, man. I feel like so much gold in this entire conversation. And I know everyone listening will have taken a ton of value from this. 
I want to be super respectful of your time, man. So before, before I let you, I also, well, I have to be super bad as well. So I'm going to let you go here pretty quick. But before I do let you go, um, we just tell the listener where they can find you and anything at all, like any courses, anything you have coming up. Yeah, so uh, musclenerds.net uh, is our webpage, musclenerds underscore health for the Instagram. We're not very active on Facebook. I don't think anybody is these days. So you can find us in those places. If you ever want to ask about a course or do online training, we do courses, we do mentorships, we do consults, that's at info at musclenerds.net. And so kind of our flagship thing is program design, where I teach all of this stuff. And so we're using, it's, it's, an evidence-based course from the standpoint of we do look at the literature and we're, we're evidence-informed. We're not typically evidence-based in the traditional sense. Um, evidence comes from a lot of different areas. If you've been training like I have your entire life and training other people for over two decades, you know, you've, you have a level of experience that or evidence that comes from experience. And sometimes literature hasn't caught up with that. Um, but then you, you also have to be based on the literature and, and understand where the limitations of literature is, but also where the limitations of anecdotal experiences. So we created a, a large flagship uh, program design to get people to think. So what we do is we're teaching concepts in a way of critical thinking, um, not just giving you a bunch of methods that may or may not work for your clients. Um, so we've got that. We have an online, very inexpensive foundational uh, nutrition course online. That one's all online. Um, we have one that's an online video training course. So if you're getting into online training, but it's different than what you normally see. This is more about how to set it up, how to talk to your clients, how to communicate. It's not really teaching you how to write the program. It's just teaching you how to deliver it in a way that gives you high level service. Hmm? That's so needed though. I think that's like the biggest yeah. thing that most online trainers are missing. It's massive. They're jumping into online training, but they don't know how to deliver a really nice product and they don't know how to listen and communicate with their clients. So we have that one. Um, I'm developing a gut course right now, which will basically be digestion and assimilation. And then basic stuff, like if people's bloating, if they've got you know diarrhea, constipation, here's all the possibilities. Here's nutrient deficiency you need to worry about, how to improve someone's uh, digestion. Because realistically, that's part of recovery. If you don't digest and assimilate your food properly, you're just not going to recover and you could be wasting a lot of food. It could be very expensive. You get guys who are skinny and they're trying to, they're eating 7,000, 8,000 calories a day and they just can't gain weight. Maybe it's not the food. Maybe it's your ability to get the food to the cell. That's the problem. So how do we figure that out? So we've got a lot of stuff. Um, I have some rehabby treatment stuff I'm working on right now um, with kind of like uh, the way we do structural uh, balance that integrates flexibility, mobility training inside of the workout. Um, I'm just trying to get it all laid out, strategize how I need to teach it because it's, it's a complex thought process, but the protocols are fairly easy if you, if you understand what you're doing. So yeah, we got all that and uh, online training, all that stuff. So oh, everything. I will link all that up in the show notes. Uh, yeah, you guys do have a lot going on, but again, I'll make sure all that is in the show notes. Um, personal Instagram as well, dude. Great memes on there. Um, <laughs> I had to shout you out for that. But again, man, this has been awesome. Thank you for being here. Yeah, man. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it.